Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Maeve Marston, and you're listening to Queer Stories. This week, Andrew Little has had a long career in social work and social justice, including heading up the first cross-London program to support people living with HIV to go back to work, and setting up a disabled people's peak org called Inclusion London. In Australia, he worked with the National LGBTI Health Alliance, but now he enjoys a quieter life, spending more time with his partner and much-loved schnauzer, Fritz. I really do enjoy how many queers put their dogs in their bios. Enjoy. Where in the world would you most like to visit? John asked. This question started the greatest journey of my life. It was a glorious autumn day on the Anzac Day long weekend. I was surrounded by a group of friends under a huge Moreton Bay fig in Glee Point Park. The year was 1995. I hadn't worked since taking medical retirements three years earlier. I'd been diagnosed with HIV in 1985 at the tender age of 24 and I was told that I had a life expectancy of just two years. So by 1995, I was already well past my use-by date, and like so many friends, living on borrowed time. Ireland, I answered. Having returned to my native England several times, I had never had the chance to go the extra distance to get to Ireland. So a few days later, John called to invite me to join him and Josephine on their Irish leg of their round-the-world trip. I was thrilled at the idea of a shared holiday. And then I started to think. Perhaps I could use this trip to make one last effort to search for my birth mother. Now, I've always known that I was adopted. I can't even remember being told. I've always known that I had been carefully planned for and that I was especially chosen and was much loved. But there was always this little voice gnawing away inside. Who was my real mum? Did she ever think of me or even remember me? Every year in my teens, or since my teens, I would make time to be alone on my birthday, go for a walk and wonder about who she might be, hoping that she was thinking about me too. But most of all, I'd just send out a message into the universe letting her know that I was okay and I'd had a good life. I'd stopped pursuing my earlier searches to find my mother so as not to upset my grandmother, who had reacted as if I was betraying the family. She asked me why I wanted to find this woman who had so easily abandoned me as a baby. Following her recent death, I now felt able to start the search again. I recommenced my search with the file that I had found while rifling through Dad's filing cabinet as a teenager, as one does. From my original birth certificate, I knew that my original name had been Stephen Lee Banton and that my mother was Joan Banton. 
who was just 16 years old when I was born. Now, conveniently, copies of the English births, deaths and marriages records are all held here in Sydney, but in microfiche format. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone else here is old enough to remember microfiche. Before we had computers, some genius in the 60s figured out that there would soon be so many public documents that they would need a library the size of the World Wide Web to store them. So they invented a way to store hundreds of pages on translucent plastic film. But here there is no simple search function. Using microfiche required studious concentration as you guided the magnifying lens up and down and across the microfilms. One slip of the hand or an untimely blink and the important piece of information that you're searching for could be so easily missed. Access to this marvel of modern technology was limited to one hour every fortnight. It was amazing how quickly each of those hours would pass and how slow the intervening fortnight seemed. I hunted through years of marriage records for a possible marriage for Joan. Success, I found that she had married a Ken Scribbins in 1965. Then I searched through the birth records to find if Joan and Ken had had any children. Eventually I found that I had a half-brother, Doug, born in 1966, and a half-sister, Paula, in 1968. Now I had an address where my mother lived when her youngest child, Paula, was born. I then approached NORCAP, which is the Adoption Society in England, and they advised me that there was another file in existence located at a local county court. Described as the other side of the coin, this file was from the agency who had arranged my adoption. This file could be released, but only to an accredited adoption counsellor. That counsellor grilled me like I was on trial. Why did I want to do this? What did I hope to achieve? Had I thought through the possible outcomes? Was I prepared for outright rejection? Or worse, my mother had already died. For the first time, I articulated one of my driving motivators. I wanted to get my message to my mother that not only had I had a good life, but I didn't bear a grudge for her giving me up. The counsellor then took me through my own fear. How would my mother react to me being gay? Yes, the embar embarrassing emergence of my own internalised homophobia. But more, was it fair of me to turn up when I was so ill? Because by this time, I had the look that we used to see all too often back then. I was thin, gaunt, wasted, with Carposi's sarcoma lesions, or KS, on my legs and feet. The counsellor's response to me was one simple question. How would I react if when I met my mother, she told me that she had breast cancer and did not have long to live? My instant response was, well, thank goodness, I've got here in time. And with that simple question and answer, she alleviated my lingering concerns and gave me the courage to continue. When the file arrived, it was full of treasures. It contained backstories not only of my birth mother, but my father as well. 
It turns out he was a 21-year-old university student and his name was Derek Stanley Frederick Fell. In the back of the file was a neatly written letter from my mother, politely asking for another photograph of me because she had lost the only one that she had. The reply was a terse rejection of her request because Stephen, me, had now been adopted and no further contact was allowed. Before I left the trip, one last thing had to be sorted out. I had recently started a trial for a new HIV drug called ritonavir. These were the days when HIV meant certain death, and so getting access to trial drugs offered a potential lifeline, despite the risk of toxic side effects. This one was a double-blind placebo trial, which meant that neither my doctor nor I knew whether I would be on real drug or a placebo. However, the drug company was so desperate to keep me in the trial that they bent over backwards to facilitate this while I travelled. I was supplied with a special esky because the drug had to be kept cold. Only hospitals involved in the trial could carry out the monitoring blood test required and supplied the ongoing drug. The nearest hospital to my travels was in Paris. Well, I arrived in England and sequestered myself in Canterbury Library and waded through every phone book in the country. Luckily, my mother's name was, had an unusual spelling. And my father always used all his middle names. It took just two days to find the addresses and phone numbers of both my mother and my father. And I was certainly not brave enough to simply knock on their front doors and say, Hello, I'm your son. So I asked for help from NORCAP for the next step. I travelled to Cambridge to meet the CEO, Carol, who had agreed to take on my case. Carol wrote two letters, one each to Joan and my father Derek, beautifully constructed so that if the letters fell into the wrong hands, no secrets would be revealed. The letter to my mother read, I've been asked to get in touch with you by an old friend, Stephen Lee who'd lost contact with you many years ago. It was actually back in September 1960, when you were living in Dalem Gardens. After a silence of so many years, Stephen felt awkward writing to you direct, hence my letter. In the 1960s, there were institutions where unmarried mothers were hidden away for the duration of their pregnancy, to avoid the shame being brought on their families. Dalem Gardens was one of these places. After touring Ireland, I dashed to Paris to find a hospital conducting the drug trial, have the blood tests, answer their research questions, and pick up my next four weeks' supply of the drug. I appealed to the French doctors to be taken off the trial and given access to the real drug, rather than continue the risk of only being on the placebo, which I was by then convinced was the case. Because unfortunately, my KS was considered a pre-existing a pre condition, and even though it was spreading rapidly, it did not qualify as grounds to cease the trial. While I was in Paris, I received a phone call from England. A letter had arrived, for me, postmarked Cambridge. The letter was from Carol, saying that both Joan and Derek had replied, they knew who I was, 
and wanted to meet me. My heart was pounding with excitement and trepidation. And even though it was pouring with rain, I had to get out and go for a walk. After the storm, I found myself sitting on the steps of Sacré-Cœur. It was hot and steamy, and the sun had begun to break through the clouds, casting dramatic shards of light over Paris. I'll never forget that feeling. Back in England a week later, during our first nervous telephone conversation, Joan and I agreed to meet at Hampstead Tube Station, as there was only one entrance. I arrived early. My nerves were mounting as the appointed time approached. I tried out various dances, and as I turned once more, a man approached me, inquiring, Are you Andrew? I was struck by the obvious family resemblance. Yes, I answered, and you must be my brother Doug. He smiled. He shook my hand and awkwardly hugged me. He turned, reached out, and gently took hold of the arm of an obviously nervous, beautiful woman who'd been hiding behind a pillar. Andrew, he said, as he drew us closer, I'd like you to meet your mother. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, share your favourite stories on socials, and follow Queer Stories on Facebook for updates. You can also follow me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter. If you enjoy Queer Stories, consider signing up to my Patreon. The link's in the podcast description. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.